Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Kadri Vivalin, who is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Southern California. She has published articles on a wide variety of topics, including time travel, counterfactuals, free will, and determinism. That's quite a list, Kadri. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, you have a book, um, Causes, Laws, and Free Will, uh, Why Determinism Doesn't Matter. And in the book, you argue that it's a mistake to think that science might tell us that we don't have free will. Um, do, we, do we have free will? I think so. And I think most people think so. Uh, yeah. It is popular these days, uh, especially among scientists, to hear announcements that we don't have free will, that neuroscience has discovered that we don't have it. But yeah. I think that these are mistaken. Uh, so, so when we think about free will, um, you, have, you have a book chapter, Compatibilism, Incompatibilism, and Impossibilism. So I guess there are different ways from a philosophical perspective. There are different ways to analyze uh, how people think about free will. How, how, well, how do those three things uh, differ? Thank you, that's a good question. Uh, the incompatibilist, uh, as a term is it understood by philosophers, is someone who thinks that we might have free will. In fact, many incompatibilists believe we do have it, but they think that science might show us that we don't have it, basically by showing that we are no exception to the laws that govern everything else. A yes. compatibilist like myself uh, believes that we do have free will and that if science showed us, as I think it has showed us, that we are not an exception to the fundamental laws of physics, that is not relevant to the question of free will. The impossibilist is someone who thinks that free will is actually impossible. Perhaps impossible for human beings, maybe a god could have it, but they set some sort of standard for free will that is so high that no one could have it. 
So let, let, let me start with impossibilism first. So, so what's the argument there that it's impossible to have free will? There are different ways of having this view, but uh, one way, Sam Harris, uh, uh, among those uh, who are fairly widely known as an example, uh, is to say that we would have free will only if we had complete control over all of the causal factors that lead up to our doing anything at all, and therefore complete control over not just our choices, our actions, and our actions, but our entire lives. And so, so are they arguing then that we don't have complete control and hence it is impossible to have free will? Uh, yes. And I think most people, compatibilists as well as incompatibilists, and I think my students, that is most ordinary people, don't think we have to have that kind of control to have free will. After all, we all know that we started life with no control at all, our DNA, our parents, our early childhood. Uh, we know that some people have much more control and power than others, but we don't think that that means that they have free will and we don't. Yeah, so, so you make a distinction between determinism uh, and and free will. Um, so so for my own understanding, uh, Kadri, when we think about control, that is different from determinism, right? At least from a scientific perspective, I can think about a situation that things sort of evolve deterministically. Uh, so that's sort of a regime I can define. Um, control is different from that, is it? I think that's an excellent point, yes. Determinism is a matter of how the laws of the universe are. Control is a matter of causation. You have control over what you do insofar as you are able to cause something. Right, right. And so, so, so there are two questions or two problems to analyze. One is, are uh, universal laws deterministic? Uh, are things sort of evolving deterministically? Uh, and then um, if they are, or if they are not, um, uh, are we causing them? Do we have control over them, right? So um, so how do, uh, and so from an impossibilism uh, perspective, uh, what they're saying is that we don't have control, but they're not rejecting, uh, are they, are they are they also saying that uh, things are deterministic? No, the impossibilist is someone who says it doesn't matter. Oh. Determinism might be true, and then you have no control because you have no control over the laws and the past, and that laws and the past together are sufficient for whatever happens. But the impossibilist says if determinism is false, that doesn't help either because the alternative to determinism is basically chance. Yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't really matter how laws evolve deterministically or with random, uh, random variants in them. As long as you don't have control over them, you don't, you don't really have free will. Uh, so how, how do you contrast that with your view of compatibilism? Well, perhaps we could start by talking about what you take free will to be. Yeah. I find that I've talked free, 
I've taught a course on free will and determinism for many, many years to intro level students. And I always do a quiz at the beginning before they've heard me say anything, asking them whether they have free will. Almost everyone says yes. I don't ask them to define it, but I ask a series of questions like, when did you first begin to have free will? Do you always have free will? Does every human being have free will? Do animals have free will? Could some future AI have free will? And it turns out the answers vary widely. So my view is roughly this. Whatever you might mean by free will, I think you can have it even if determinism is true. So what do you mean by free will? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm really conflicted <laughs> uh, about this. Uh, so my personal view um, is more in the, in the area that we don't have free will. And, um, you know, if I think about uh, developments in artificial intelligence, let me ask you this. Let's say we create a machine that is able to predict your actions, whether they are tactical or more long-term, uh, it doesn't have to be precisely, let's say the machine is able to predict what you're going to do. It might do it probabilistically, so it's not necessarily deterministic, but let's say it's always right in what you're going to do. If that is the case, can we really argue we have free will? Uh, I think so, but that's because I don't think predictability has that much to do with freedom. I can predict what my children will do often because I know them very well. But yeah. I don't think that that takes away their um, power of choice. Yeah, yeah. And so so, so your, your view of compatibilism, if I understand it correctly, um, it doesn't Again, uh, if things are deterministic, um, th that is okay. Uh, you can still have free will, right? That is what if free, the, the idea of having free will is compatible with uh, deterministic um, evolution of uh, loss. Yes. Okay. And so, so, so how can we... Um, Convince me that we have free will. Well, it's a little bit hard because <laughs> you haven't told me what you mean. I mean, it is an interesting fact, I think, about how people uh, think about free will, that they do start off assuming they have it. And I could read you a list of some of the definitions my students have offered, but uh, they often come down to something like this. To have free will is to have the ability to make choices, decisions, form intentions, make resolutions, whatever, and to at least try to act on those choices. Why do yeah. I say at least try to act? Because I think freedom of action is different from free will. I could shackle you so your body can't move. Uh, and that's a problem, but it doesn't mean that you've automatically lost free will. So if you start out right. with something like that idea, which I think is our uh, ordinary understanding of free will, then I think the interesting question is, why is it so easy when people are told about determinism uh, that they, they actually panic? I've had, <laughs> I, uh, after 
teaching determinism uh, for a few years, I noticed that my students weren't really accepting the definition. They were saying, determinism is true except for my choices. <laughs> so I spent more time explaining it. And then I found this stubborn resistance. Students were refusing to believe it was true because it seemed so obvious that if it's true, we don't have free will. So all of this is to say that I don't think it's an easy matter to show that the two are compatible, but they are. Yeah, so uh, don't we have some sort of bias? For instance, um, you know, somebody who believes we don't have free will um, would, would rather have free will, right? So th there is, uh, I would argue there is a bias in a human being to have free will. And hence, um, they will always come up with ways to, uh, to prove or argue we have free will. For example, having choices, at least in my view, in itself don't, don't really prove we have free will, right? Um, you know, cho cho the, the, the fact that we perceive choices don't necessarily mean those choices actually exist. Okay, good. Now we're getting somewhere. Um, yes, I think if you want to argue against free will, you have to say what it is that we're missing. What is it that we think we have? Because we at least start out thinking we have free will that somehow is just an illusion, as they say. And yeah. one of the first things to say is, well, but obviously we choose. We have experience of making choice. And you're saying, well, we shouldn't assume it is what it seems to be. And I think you're right. And that's why it's a hard problem. Because think about yeah. it. What is it to choose? When you choose, you believe you have options. You have alternatives. Right. You're not really choosing if there was only one choice you were able to make. Right? And it's because... Right determinism seems to say that there is just one choice that we're able to make, i.e. The, the first naive understanding of determinism is that we would just be like rocks falling to the ground or ourselves for that matter. If someone throws you out of an airplane, you're not able to stop your descent to the ground. So I think the thought is that determinism means that the same thing is true and we're never able to choose, try, or act otherwise. Is that? Yeah, so, so there is a hypothesis, as you know, Kartri, about uh, the simulation hypothesis that living, living simulation. Um, I wonder if we can somehow reject that we are presented with false choices. So we, we perceive choices, but they are false, because uh, the, the choice that we make is predetermined, uh, and hence the, the, the perception of existing choices are just that, it's just a perception. Can we reject that somehow through- You have to be careful with the word predetermined. That's a slippery slope. When a person moves from determined yeah. to predetermined, that suggests inevitable and unavoidable. Now, when you're thrown yeah. out of an airplane, your descent, unless you have a parachute, your descent to the ground is unavoidable. No matter what you choose or try to do, you will fall down. Yeah. But it's not true in the same sense that whatever you choose or try to do is unavoidable. 
if you wanted to do something else more, or you had, you believed that there are good reasons for doing something else more, then it is at least sometimes true that you do choose to do something else instead. Yeah, but but is it really avoidable? That is that is why it's a hard problem, right? So if I superimpose this prediction capabilities that we are generating, and um, you know we are increasingly able to predict what choices one would make. So you put these 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 two things together. The the individual has perceived choices, uh, but the machine externally to that individual could predict what choice that person would make, then um, the existence of those choices, one, couldn't one argue they are false? No, I'm not seeing that. I mean, we don't have to have determinism and modern computers to raise that problem. This was a traditional problem having to do with God, who is outside time and can see all of us doing yeah. what we do. Uh, and quite apart from determinism, there was a traditional worry, uh, which I think is not a serious worry, that simply by watching us do what we do, God doesn't, it's called the problem of God's foreknowledge, but that's not the right name for it because God is not uh, foreseeing what you do. God is outside time. Uh, I think the right answer there is that just as my watching my son do something right now in the present, watching him do it in no way forces, causes, or compels him to do what he does. Uh, so too, uh, God looking down at us, seeing us do what we do, does not affect our freedom at all. And I would say that if we had the power to predict what a person will do, then it doesn't necessarily follow, though it might, that the person has no free will. But it sounds like yeah, I'm understanding under free will differently from you. I'm understanding free will very roughly. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of people can argue about the details. You know, do, does yeah. my dog have free will? Because the dog makes some kind of choices. Or does free will require fancier human abilities like the ability to think for yourself, to ask questions, to understand that you are someone who persists through time, to be able to remember what happened in the past, to learn from your mistakes, all these wonderful abilities that we have, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But I, the crunch always comes down to, I think, and I think this is what you're talking about, wouldn't determinism mean that these abilities are all illusions because after all, it's predictable ahead of time that we're going to do right. that. And I'm simply denying that. Yeah, um, I, so may, maybe this is a uh, semantic issue. It doesn't have to be deterministic. Um, it can be very probabilistic. Yeah, but I'm saying that you're confusing the knowledge of what someone will do with some sort of course of power or force. Again, it's hard for me because you're refusing to define free will. But if you think of free will uh, in anything like the way we usually do in terms of having some kind of control over your actions and your lives, uh, but that control comes from the inside, free will is first and foremost a mental property, right? 
So it has to do with being able to think, to make choices on the basis of your thoughts, and then to try to act on the basis of those thoughts. Right. And you're not denying any of but, that, but, are you? No, it's a bit circular, right? Because because we cannot reject the null hypothesis, whatever whatever way we try to do it. I could always come back and say it's a perception. It's not real. Excuse now, me, you can say uh, that about anything. Uh, we're not here to discuss yeah. the problem of skepticism, right? So let's just assume our senses are more or less reliable. Neuroscience is telling us interesting things about the way the brain works. Uh, some neuroscientists have claimed to show that the brain decides for you before you do, but you know those those claims, and I think you had a philosopher on here to talk about that, are are, are riddled with confusion. Um, yeah. So again, if you if you want to say that we have free will only if we have complete control, then I basically can't argue with you. I don't think we have that. Uh, here, here's a way to look at it. Uh, there's a, um, a defense that I call the desperate defense attorney's defense. Uh, it was famously used by Clarence Darrow back in 1920 in the trial of Leopold and Loeb, who were two rich kids who'd, uh, well, they weren't kids, they were in their early 20s, who had kidnapped and murdered a, a child just to see if they could commit the perfect crime. They confessed. Uh, and the only issue was yeah. whether they would get the death penalty. And Darrow, who was a brilliant attorney, used every argument in the book. But uh, the one I'm thinking of basically went like this. What did this child have to do with it? He was not his own mother. He was not his own grandmother. He did not surround himself with governesses and wealth. And yet he is to be held to pay. So we can right, always right. have that argument. But if we always make that argument, we are rejecting distinctions that I think we should have. Distinctions between the truly insane, the truly mentally incompetent, uh, those who have irresistible desires, if there are such things. I think the jury is out on that. Uh, and the rest of us. So again, if, if, your, if your argument is that we don't have that kind of control and therefore we don't have free will, then I don't disagree with you. Yeah, so so um, without knowing a lot about it, I guess I am I am I would be more in the incompatibilism view point. Um, I don't have a strong view as to whether things are deterministic. Uh, uh, but if they were, then I cannot see how somebody could have free will. Um, you know, the, the fact that we invoked God um, right from our inception, Homo sapiens, uh, you know, in some sense, uh, it's uh, symptomatic of this need uh, to say there is somebody out there watching us, but uh, he or she has allowed us to do what we, what we would like to do. It's a construct that you know, it looks like it provides some basis for free will. Do no, you see I don't. That? I'm an atheist. I've never believed in God. Um, there are philosophers for whom <laughs> um, that's an important justification. And obviously, if you believe uh, that the stakes are very high, like uh, eternal damnation, 
or bliss, uh, then you might have a different kind of concern, but I don't have that. I think in a nutshell that we yeah. have free will, we probably don't have as much freedom of action, i.e. control over our lives, as many people think. I am very aware of the causes of people's behavior. Perhaps I am more forgiving than most because of that. Nevertheless, I think we have free will, and I think that's a really important thing to have. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's a debate that will go on. <laughs> Uh, because you can reach a conclusion from different perspectives and, and because you cannot reject other, uh, other ideas. Uh, no, in um, philosophy, we can get yeah. sort of more specific about the premises. So, for instance, in philosophy, there are really yeah. only two main arguments for the claim that determinism rules out free will. One is that if determinism yeah. is true then the causes of our acts and choices can be traced back to factors outside our control. So we never really initiate or originate our actions. Right. And the other one is the one I've already alluded to, which is that if determinism is true, then we always must do and choose whatever we actually do. So on this view, what we call our choices maybe aren't deserving of the name because we don't have options. Well, those are real arguments. And uh, of course, philosophers, you know, we don't always convince one another, but we don't think it's just a matter of perspective. Hmm. You, you have another book chapter, uh, Dispositional yes. Compatibilism. Um, given that you're a compatibilist, uh, how does this differ from the general compatibilism? Oh, view? you mean, how does it differ from the views of other philosophers who are compatibilists? No, in other words, you know, what do you mean by okay. dispositional compatibility? Uh, you know, I did not coin that term. Uh, I wrote an ar article yeah. some years before the book in which, trying to be provocative, I called it free will uh, demystified, a dispositionalist account. Uh, so I, I, I said yeah. it in very crude form, and I'll say it again in crude form, and then I can <laughs> explain it in a more subtle way. Um, I, I think that the main reason that people think that determinism rules out free will is because they think that we're never able to do anything other than what we actually do. Uh, so the question is, what is it to have the ability to do otherwise? And yeah. just a second, I'm sorry. So I compared abilities, human abilities, to dispositions. A disposition, say fragility, is a real property. A yeah. glass that's fragile is something that could break. I'm not saying the glass has free will. The point is just that it continues. Something has a disposition. It is, in a sense, able to do or behave in a certain way even during the times when it's not doing that. Uh, an example that's not quite as clearly unlike free will as fragility uh, is of something that's sometimes called a causal power. Uh, take a rock, a rock can break a window, a paper airplane can't. Again, that's a real difference between yeah. the rock 
in the paper window. I think of abilities as the key to free will. Uh, nobody denies we have ordinary abilities, like say, if you know how to play the piano, then you're able to play it now, even while you're not playing it. My suggestion was that we have free will by having a combination of abilities, including these really important mental abilities like choosing on the basis of reasons and reasoning and trying to act on our choices. And we have these abilities when we're not exercising them and because we have these abilities, we're able to do otherwise. Right. Yeah. And so are you saying then free will is sort of an inherent property? Um, are you assigning that to human beings or biological systems uh, in general? That's a good question and not one I have a decided view on. I know philosophers, most philosophers tend to want uh, free will to be a sort of rational property. So only human beings and possibly non-human beings, but someone with the ability to reason has it. But I know philosophers who've argued that even quite simple animals have free will. I myself have no settled view on this matter. Hmm. Yeah, um, when I think about reasoning process though, um, if, if we are given a tool and we sort of apply that tool, that increases the likelihood that we always end up in, in, in one spot, don't we? Say that again. I'm sorry, I missed that last part. So, so, so reasoning as a tool that yes. humans use, right? If we use that systematically, won't we always end up in, in the same spot? Um, in, in other words, the... Uh, I'm making a distinction between, let's say, I see a lot of variability in in people's actions, and then I can I can use that variability as sort of a proxy for free will. Uh, but if if you say reason, ability to reason is sort of a, a, a necessary condition, then that ability will actually reduce the variance that you will see in people's actions, right? They always I'm, end up in the same spot. That. Why do they always end up in the same spot? Uh, so, you know, just just say, you know, the, the reasoning that you use, uh, you know, something very crude, if X, then Y type reasoning. Given X, you would always pick Y. I, okay, so first of all, I don't think that the ability to choose is just the ability to reason. I was actually contrasting my view with philosophers who tend to emphasize reason. But second, reason can be understood far yeah. more broadly than uh, deductive reasoning. Um, so when I'm thinking yeah. of, uh, of, of uh, instances of free will, I am thinking as broadly as um, say, actually I was just reading a novel about an art restorer and there was a wonderful passage about, um, if I can find it, about just responding to the paint. How did it go? Uh, it is it fill in that crack, scrape off those drops of glue, too much red, no, let's leave that. I.e., 
she was looking at the painting and wondering how, you know, which brush stroke could go where to do what. This is a rational process in a broad yeah. sense, but it's not an if X then Y. And the art restorer need not have been consciously thinking in the sense of talking to herself. She was just looking at the painting. Right. Right, right. I mean, it's for this yeah, reason so, that a lot of people think that I, no AI could ever have a mind, right? Because they think AI just does things according to the program, which is an if X then Y kind of thing. And then they'll say, but look, human beings are so wonderfully creative. And indeed they are, but we are also, we also yeah. have some kind of programming that we don't ourselves know about. Yeah, I, I don't quite believe this, uh, Kadri, but for argument's sakes, for debate's sake, I will say there is really nothing special about humans. Uh, their brains appear to be sort of a processing engine. Uh, they take in data from various senses, they process that, they, they make a decision. Uh, there doesn't appear to be anything really special well, about I, a human I being. With you. I mean, we think we're special, but I'm not. I was on a panel only about a week ago arguing with someone who insisted that we are so special that no machine could ever have a mind or anything <laughs> like human intelligence. I don't see, I get it maybe beyond our capabilities to design such a thing, but I don't think there's yeah. anything unique to humans or even to a biological organism. So I am thoroughly a compatibilist. <laughs> So, so th th this is a this is possibly a test, right? So, if humans are able to create a machine that thinks and behaves like a human, couldn't that then prove that I humans guess you don't? You can run it in either direction. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think that. I, I. I think you do have to ask when you run these arguments. I mean, this is, I think, one of the problems yeah. with philosophy. And of course, we all do philosophy, is that we start with something, you know, a belief that we have. We have free will or we have a mind, we think. And we presumably got that belief from the yeah. world. It didn't come from nowhere. We got it from our experience. We should, that doesn't mean it's right, but we shouldn't right. just throw it out. And then you start to do some fancy philosophy and think about it a bit and some people do want to say, oh, we were wrong all along. But <laughs> I guess what I'm saying, one of the things I'm saying is we don't always know what we think we know. It's not as if we had starting out right. a definition of free will that included the fact that we are somehow cut off from the external world, not caused by it. Right. Yeah, that, that's an interesting argument. So yeah, the fact that we are imperfect is actually providing a higher level of um, proof uh, to the existence of free will, right? If we were perfect in, in every aspect, then we will become, you know, sort of an automaton, right? So, you, you know, it, it will be doing everything precisely correct all the time. Uh, but uh, we, we see humans are completely, well, completely might be too far, but yes. humans are faulty. They're, they're not 
Uh, yes, I think that's very right. And I think that's why some attempts, not just in philosophy, but in some branches of, say, cognitive uh, science, the attempts to sort of give a purely rational psychology to try to cut off our reasoning powers from our bodies is so misguided. And maybe that's one of the reasons people think that a machine couldn't possibly have free will because they think that it would be perfectly rational. I think we have to know that whatever it is, a machine is physical. It's not biological, but it's physical. So it might, you know, if we, if we proceeded the way we're now proceeding with neural networks and machines that can, as it were, program themselves and teach themselves, maybe we'll evolve machines that are as imperfect as we are. Right, right. That is my belief. You know, homocentric views um, over history have right. always shown to be incorrect. <laughs> uh, and so I don't think we can make a statement like we cannot create a machine that is a human being. Uh, like you were saying, we don't, well, at least I don't see the human system to be anything so dramatically special that it cannot be replicated at some future future time, then it becomes quite interesting. Um, so, so from a compatibilist view, that's perfectly fine for you because you could then assign free will yeah. to the new machine and you'll uh, be perfectly yes. fine with that, right? We may indeed, I mean, I mean here's another way of yeah. thinking about it. Free will sometimes uh, puts people off. Uh, the machine might be what we would call a person Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, we should treat it the way we treat human persons. Yeah, we, we are not, uh, we are not too yeah. far, <laughs> too far from it. The next generation might, uh, might get, I mean, there's always, you know, there are always um, uh, questions around ethics. Um, and, you know, when, when a computer gets emotions, uh, then a whole set of uh, ethical considerations that need to be right. need to be put in place, right? So, um, so we are not too far from it. At least, you know, this is my biased view. We'll take a we'll take a quick break, Kadri. Uh, when we come back, uh, okay. we'll talk about time travel. Bye. Thanks. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back, uh, Kadri. We were, we were talking about free will and um, different philosophers and others um, who have different views on this. And um, they could be looked at perhaps in three different categories, uh, compatibilist, incompatibilist, and impossibilist. And our conversation, the first half in, uh, with introspection, tells me that uh, I am somewhere in between incompatibilist and impossibilist. So I may need to create a new category. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but you you say you are a compatibilist. Uh, I want to go into another topic, 
that you have written uh, written about, and you have a paper that came out recently entitled "Killing Time Again." Uh, and you say in this paper, I have argued that even if time travel is metaphysically possible, there are some things that time traveler would not be able to do. Um, and so scientists have used this idea that, um, you know, this contradiction that if you go back and kill your grandfather, that, that is, that's not going to work. And so, and so you cannot go back in time. But your view is that it is actually possible but then uh, they won't be able to do certain things. Is that the idea? That's exactly right. Yes. And so, so, so how do you come? How, so what's the basis for this, this argument? Okay, this is slightly complicated. I just have to explain a little bit of the background. Uh, ever since 1976, a brilliant philosopher, probably the smartest philosopher of the 20th century, he died prematurely, David yeah. Lewis, published a paper defending the possibility of time travel. It is interesting that he did this a good 10 or 20 years before physicists started talking seriously about it. Yeah. In any case, he succeeded. He actually succeeded in convincing most of the philosophers who think about time travel that there is no logical objection to it. So this was against the background of certain views about the nature of time, roughly the view that physics takes seriously, the space-time view, and he, yeah. he made all sorts of objections, but the one that seems to grip everyone has to do with freedom. But we have to be a bit careful here. Uh, we can all agree that if you go to the past, to the actual past, where, yeah. say, your grandfather did not die when he was 20, but lived to have your dad and eventually you, then yeah. you're not going to do it. You can't change the past. But the question for philosophers was whether there was a contradiction about freedom. And the problem, which I actually posed even more dramatically, uh, not by not talking about a grandfather, but by talking about your own baby self, seemed to be that if you travel back to the spot where, say, you were a helpless sleeping baby, uh, determined for some reason to kill your younger self, maybe you're so depressed you think it's better that you never lived, then it yeah. seems on the one hand that you're able to do it, if you're able to do anything, right? If anyone is ever able to do anything, surely they can kill a helpless sleeping baby. Right. You've got a gun, no one's there to stop you. However, on the other hand, it seems you can't because if the baby were dead, you would never have grown up to be you and to travel back in time to try to kill your earlier self. Well, the standard uh, uh, philosopher's answer to this, which will probably strike you as incredible, so you have to first be a compatibilist, which <laughs> most philosophers are. Uh, and David Lewis argued that can just means compossible with some contextually determined facts. So his claim was that, of course, you could kill your baby self because it's consistent, impossible with the fact that you've got a gun in your hand, you're near the baby, there's no one there to stop you. You could do it. Anyone else could do it. Why can't you? Yeah. Uh, and he said, if you think that you can't, you're making a certain kind of philosophical mistake. You are succumbing to fatalist reasoning. What is a fatalist? In the philosophical sense, a fatalist is somebody who thinks that truth alone makes you unfree. 
I was, when we were talking about where they're predicting or God seeing what you do might make you unfree, that was in effect a fatalist claim to say that just because it's true in the future or in the past or at any time that something will happen, it doesn't follow that it has to happen. So that was Lewis's claim. He said that if you think you can't kill your baby self is that is because you're saying, given that the baby lives to be me, you can't do it. Mm. That was his argument. And since he used it to defend time travel and since his other arguments were brilliant, like a lot of other philosophers, I was convinced by it and I said, wait a minute, this is crazy. Of course you can't do it. So my argument just turned on the fact that a necessary condition of being able to do something is that you don't always fail. And in the case yeah. of the time traveler and the baby who was your younger self, it seems to be true that not only will you always fail, but you in effect have to fail. If you had tried again, you would have failed again. Hmm. Yeah, uh, strangely, um, I, I agree with this, this idea, Kadri, you know, uh, time travel is metaphysically possible. There are some things you would not be able to do, but perhaps for a different reason. Let me let me try this on you. Okay. Um, so, if you are traveling back in time, by definition, uh, the time equal to zero today doesn't exist. So, so when you're back in time, you don't have the current time. Uh, you you're basically it's an erasing process you have erased uh, the future. And so you're essentially starting over so that, you know, you can, you can actually do whatever you want. Um, uh, and, you know, th th there is no contradiction because you can't really compare the future. The future hasn't happened yet. Okay, that's a different model of time travel. And there are philosophers who, you know, talk about it this way and defend the claim that it's possible in this way. That wasn't the view of time that David Lewis was assuming. And it wasn't the view that I was assuming. Uh, so the view of time, so the view that you're describing, uh, there's two features. Uh, when you go back in time, you, as it were, erase time, as you put it. And then you, it, it, you start a different timeline, right? That's what you were saying. You're back in the yeah. past, and now uh, you can uh, kill the baby you in one past, but since you're already grown up, uh, whatever. Lewis had set himself the harder task of taking seriously the view. It's sometimes called the block universe view, um, yeah. sometimes called the space-time view. Sean Carroll has a nice uh, video that I showed to my class recently. <laughs> he yeah. calls it eternalism. But it's the view that physics tells us or seems to tell us that other times are just as real as the present time. Right. Just as other spaces, places are just as real. So on that view, when you go back to the past, however you manage to do it, you are back in the only past. And yeah. in that past, you were killed as a child. Right. And so your view is uh, the, the block universe construct, um, or everything is done, the past, the present, the future, everything exists. Uh, you're just traveling in time. So 
is a view then when, when you go back uh, essentially it's okay to go back at, but but you will have a set of constraints that you won't be able to do certain things uh, that's right but the constraints are not as bad as you might think you certainly mm -hmm. can't kill your younger self or your grandmother because you wouldn't be there to do it in effect I use the counterfactual, but the laws rule it out. We know there's no resurrection from the dead. If there were, maybe you could, right? If the world worked differently, you could kill the baby and then the baby would be revived and grow up to be you. Uh, but you could do other things. Again, this is just my compatibilism. Uh, you you yep. might not agree, but I think if you uh, suppose time travel were invented and there were time travel safaris, so we went back to the time of the dinosaurs, and the tour guide said, let's go for a tour of this prehistoric beach and you don't do it. I want to say you could have done it. You just didn't. Yeah, um, it's a bit of a slippery slope card. So suppose, suppose I say, uh, suppose somebody has taken, uh, you know, a, a, a video r record of uh, space and time, specific space and time uh, of that moment, and we're not there. Now you are unable to do that, right? Because you cannot, you know, put yourself into that picture. Okay, you're you're raising really excellent questions. Uh, what it's true, philosophers have sort of struggled with this whole question of not just time travel but backwards causation as well. Uh, yeah. Not exactly concluding that it's impossible, but concluding that there's a real conceptual strain because the world would be so odd. And one of the reasons the world would be so odd is just what you said. We have so much information about the past. We have so many records. We have photographs. Uh, and that does seem to place constraints about what we can do in a ways that we don't have about the future because while we know quite a lot about the future, we don't have the same kind of detailed knowledge. Right. So, so at the limit, one could argue you are fully constrained. So let me ask you again, so from a, if, uh, going back to the, the free will question, suppose all of us are time travelers uh, and, and at the limit, we are fully constrained. If you're time travelers, then we don't have free will then. I know, but again, that's because, maybe I should explain, uh, the notion of possibility that I'm working with here is quite yeah. distinct from truth. Again, and here I'm just going to echo David Lewis, who said, uh, we're not fatalists about the future because we don't know the future. So because I don't know, even though I'm pretty sure that I'll have a cup of coffee tomorrow, first thing when I wake up, because I always do, I might think, oh, I could not have that cup of coffee because after all, there's no fact yet of the matter, whether I will or not. Whereas, of course, right. we're used to thinking there are facts about the future, because we know the past, because we know so much about it. Now, that's not my reason for saying that we're unfree in the past. My reason for saying un that we're unfree in the past is the same kind of reason I apply in ordinary life. Normally, and here we remember we're talking about freedom of action, not free will. 
I think I'm able to do something because I believe that if I tried to do it, I'd probably succeed. If I, tr if I wanted to leave this conversation right now and go to the kitchen for a cup of coffee, um, I would do that. So yeah. my point about the unfreedom of the relative unfreedom of the time traveler is there's going to be more problems like that. Right. Yeah, I, I'm just looking at, you know, from, uh, let's say all of us are, are from one year forward in time. We just went back one year. And let's say we have full record of everything that happened last 365 days. In such a situation, nobody can do anything different from what existed. No, I don't think that's false. Think about, some, uh, think about something in history. Uh, for instance, yeah. we know that there were attempts to assassinate Hitler and they all failed. He died by his own hand towards the end of the war. Now, suppose that historians discovered some attempt that we, we hadn't known about, right? They made a new discovery. There was some, you know, the third attempt. I don't know how many there were. Well, of course, we know that it did fail, right? Because we have the historical evidence. But right. it doesn't follow that it had to fail. You know, maybe if they had planned a little bit more carefully, they could have succeeded. Again, my point is that I'm talking about a counterfactual. Hmm. A counterfactual may be true, but what makes it true is not what happens at the actual world. It's what happens at some, what philosophers call a possible world. So for instance, right now I'm holding uh, my pen in my hand. This is a, a, uh, an example I use for my students. And I say to the students, look, do you believe that if I drop this pen, it would fall to the floor? And they all say, yes. And I say, how do you know that? I didn't do it. So my point is that we do know counterfactuals, even though they are about something that didn't actually happen. Does that make sense? Uh, it, it does. It, it, it makes sense in the contemporary sense. But if, if we are time traveling, though, uh, like you say, uh, so if I understand it correctly, Gadri, what you're saying is that what you said, I think there are certain constraints that you won't be able to do anything about, but you still have other things that you could do. But I could refute that if I can show you a complete history, a complete record of everything. So, you know, you cannot put yourself in a in a space and time coordinate because we have a complete record of every space and time coordinate. Okay, again, I'm not denying that. Okay, here's another way of looking at it. Uh, yeah. The tenses get very confused in time travel. Again, holding fixed that we're talking in terms of space-time view, not in terms of the erasing time and starting over view. Right. Uh, if right. it's true that you will travel back in time tomorrow, you, let's say you're the trip will be 100 years in the past to 1921. If it's true that you will make that trip tomorrow, then it's also true that you already made it, right? It's true. It doesn't yeah. seem, it seems weird because from your point of view, it hasn't happened yet. You don't have any memories of it. It's in your personal future, but it's part of the external right. past. We might even discover 
a future historian might discover that you wrote your initials somewhere when you were there in the past. So you could actually, we could actually have evidence now before you made the trip that you were in the past. Right. You could right. say, right, right, because that's where the, the, the tension with freedom comes, because I put it this way now, it might seem like, well, then you can not go and you've changed the past. I, it does get very tricky. Things get very tricky, <laughs> but, which is why it's so much fun thinking about time travel. But my view is a little bit odd because my, my claim is basically that philosophers who think about free will uh, are too ready. And many of them do sort of have your view skill. They are they tend to veer towards incompatibilism because it is hard to think in terms of determinism. But the philosophers who think about time travel, they say, oh, well, it's easy to be able to do otherwise. It just requires a possibility. And possibilities are easy. <laughs> and I am sort of in between. I'm saying, well, we do have this free will that's compatible with determinism. And it doesn't go away in a time travel world. But there are all these weird constraints that are freedom of action. And maybe this means it's not physically possible. I don't know. Yeah, I can see. Uh, I don't know about the statistic, Iskadri. You you mentioned that scientists uh, tend to believe free will is not there. Um, yeah. So so I can see. So for example, from a block universe co concept and context, right? If we believe that everything has happened, the past, present, and the future all lead out on a timeline. Um, by definition, you know, it, it's sort of cast and, and it's difficult to see how you can change that. And you can't, you can't change a fact. I am sitting right now. Uh, if I'm sitting, I'm not standing. So, uh, you could, you, you could argue from that, gee, it's impossible for me to stand up, but it isn't. What's impossible is that I sit and I stand. This is back to the fatalist point. The future will yeah, be the, what it is. is. It doesn't follow that it must be what it is. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily follow, right? So one could argue that this conversation, we would have had this conversation regardless and we would have this conversation, both of us sitting down in both sides of the country. All of those are done. Uh, we just replaying it. Um, and so the fact that, um, you know, we can now stand up uh, doesn't necessarily um, refute, you know, this idea that everything is cast in time. Uh, this is a great conversation. It's my view that a lot of the things that make people tend to make people think they don't have free will have to do with things other than determinism. They have to do with the way we think about ourselves and time. Yeah. And one popular view of time that it's hard not to think in terms of, but ultimately I think it makes no sense. Uh, philosophers call this the moving spotlight view. I think we just suggested it, I'm not sure. Mm. And the idea is that the past, present, and future are indeed all real, like physics says. But on the other hand, we are moving through time. Yeah. We're moving from the past towards the future. 
if you think that way, then it's clearly true that we don't have free will. Why? Because if, if you are on something like a trade moving from one city to another, uh, and you're looking at the scenery around you, yeah. uh, you have no power to affect the scenery. Right. So if our journey through time is like that, then we are epiphenomenal. We are minds with no power over our own bodies, but that view is clearly false. Right, right. And that I think that is the issue that scientists are generally having, I think. Um, uh, so even if you don't believe that, even if you don't have a, a full agreement with the block universe philosophy, uh, you still are fairly highly constrained as to what you're able to do. Now, your argument is that fairly highly constrained is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, all you have to show is that there is one thing you could do that is not constrained, and that one thing will be sufficient to prove we have free will. Uh, well, no, I, I mean, I don't, you could argue about how, how, you know, how small can we make your free will while you still have it. You could make it quite small. One of my favorite examples is, uh, do you know the book 1984? I, I don't know. Oh, well, there's, I teach it not as a political novel, but to make points about free will. Well, it's yeah. a dystopian future and the hero at one point, Winston Smith is lying flat on his back on a gurney in the ministry of love where his interrogator and torturer is uh, giving him electric shocks when he gives the wrong answers to completely absurd <laughs> questions like how many fingers am I holding up? And he's yeah. supposed to say five when there are four and he tells him things like the stars are a few miles away and you don't exist. Yeah. Uh, Winston cannot move and he gets terrible shocks when he gives the wrong answer to these questions. He continues to argue. He's a free will hero. Uh, but you were asking me uh, the constraint thing. I think we all know that we, except for a few people, some of the, some of the scientists maybe who argue that it's free will. Uh, I don't even think it's true of the scientists, actually. It's true of Sam Harris. Uh, I think we must have this sort of superpower control over yeah. the world to have free will. But we know we don't have superpowers. We know we only have human powers. And we yeah. know we're very fallible and driven by emotions and hormones and our moods and all sorts of things. Hmm. Yeah, one thing I'm taking away, uh, perhaps idea that free will is a spectrum. Yes, I think so. It's not a, a fully defined one thing. Uh, and, and that creates a complication when you when we try to have sort of a clean answer, right? Um, That's right. And so, yeah, it's, uh, um, you know, when I go to sleep, I, I think about these things, Kadri, and uh -huh. uh, you can, uh, there, there's always, it definitely puts me to sleep pretty quickly, Um but it's always uh, interesting to, to think about. Um, and, and there are no answers to it, and that makes it even more interesting. Yes, it's fascinating, that's right. So, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Kadri. Thanks so much for uh, spending time with me. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info@scientificsense.com.